we're, we're in the middle of a teaching series on the Lord's Prayer, and this is the final part. So if this is your first time with us, cool, I hope you come back. But there's five weeks that went before this you didn't get, so you can check it out on YouTube or iTunes or something like that if you want. But mostly I want to speak to today. Today is this last line of the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I want to ask you a question. If you have a bulletin, would you grab it and just turn it over and just start jotting a few notes down? I want to start with some questions for you, and I'm going to give you a little silence. The, the questions are twofold about the struggle of prayer. The first one is, how is prayer a struggle for you? How is prayer a struggle for you? And then the second one is, what are you struggling for in prayer? How is prayer a struggle? What are you struggling for? Would you just take a minute and answer those questions? Lord, our God, we find that prayer can be a struggle. And part of the reason it's a struggle is because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. And part of the reason it's a struggle is because we're not sure if we can trust you. That if you're going to answer our prayers. So our hearts desire and we struggle for things in prayer. And sometimes your answer is silence or waiting or no. And so, Lord, I invite you to speak to each one of us today as we, we think of prayer one more week, as we close out this series. Would you have a word for each one and a word for us all? It's for your kingdom and your glory that we pray. Amen. All right, one word. Can I hear from three people? How is prayer a struggle? One word. Yep. You can nod along. If, if she said time, yeah. Distraction. Distraction. Thank you. Yep, me too. Connection. Connection, yeah. There's a lot of reasons why prayer is a struggle for us. Prayer is a struggle because we live in really hectic, busy, distracted lives. We we find prayer to be a struggle because maybe if somebody else is facilitating or if you're in your group and you kind of have set time, you can really connect deeply with the Lord. Maybe prayer is a, a struggle because it just seems like one of those, instead of a priority, it's one of those posteriorities that just drops when everything else starts speeding up. There's so many reasons why prayer is a struggle. Maybe prayer is a struggle, as we've talked about, because of unanswered prayer. <laughs> prayer is a struggle because of some doubt or some wound. There's a lot of reasons why, why prayers is a struggle. One word again. Does anybody mind sharing what are you struggling for in prayer? Enough. Enough. Healing. 
one more? Anxiety, yeah. At our table time, we circled up and we shared some of what we want the Lord to deliver us from. And everybody's got something, even if you didn't share it, right? But did you notice that we're a little more reluctant to share the what than the how? It's hard. Prayer is a struggle. And so I want to start our time today with a reflection on Hebrews chapter 5. This is Hebrews 5 and verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up petitions and prayers with loud cries and tears. Loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. There's really two two wings here that in my own struggle with prayer, I sometimes miss. And the first is the wing of passion, of loudness in prayer, of crying, of emotion, of pouring yourself out. On the other hand, it's the wing of submission. It's of reverence. It's of not as I will, but as you will. Today, I'm trying to thread a needle. That's what I'm searching for, though. And if, if you want to find it, search no further than Jesus, where at once he is bold and authoritative in asking God for what he wants and what he needs. And at the same time, he is totally reverent and submissive to the will of his Father. That's what we're aiming at. So if I hit it, you can evaluate me on that. But Jesus hits the mark, and Jesus is the one that's modeling our way forward. If you want to know how to pray, you go to the master prayer. And if you want to go to the master prayer, why not go to the master class? It's the Lord's Prayer. It's in Matthew chapter 6. If you have one of our coffeehouse Bibles, it's on page 831. This is part 6. This is how Jesus introduces the idea. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When we think of prayer, prayer can be a struggle to do, and it can be a thing that we offer But biblically speaking, struggle and prayer go together. Struggle and prayer go together. Let me just illustrate in a few ways. In the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 64, he says, there's only a few of you who are striving, who are struggling to lay hold of God. That's how he's characterizing what prayer is. It's struggling to hold on to something. This idea is first seen in, you remember Jacob, he lays his head down on the rock and he has the dream at Bethel. And it says the Lord comes to him in the night, Genesis 32. And he is wrestling with God in Genesis 32. He is struggling. And so the Lord changes his name from Jacob to Israel. It says, because you struggled with God and with other people, you will be known as Israel, the one who's the one who wrestles, the one who struggles. Prayer is struggle with God. In Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle, he says it like this. He says, we do not struggle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but our, our enemy is the principalities and the powers. 
And then he says, so put on, stand up, put on the armor. And do you know how he ends that section on the armor of God? He says, and pray in the spirit at all times for all reasons. Prayer is struggle in the spiritual war. There's Daniel chapter 10. Daniel, he's fasting and he's praying. He's, he's received word that there's bad news coming. And so immediately he starts praying and he starts fasting. And for three weeks, he fasts and he prays. At the end of three weeks, 21 days later, he has this vision of an angel and an angel comes to him. And he, he says this, he says, Daniel, you are a man greatly loved. He says, I've been sent to you. So don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to this, from the first day that you started praying, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them, but the chief princes, he says, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days, and then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And so now I've come to explain what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to go. So he says, I was praying for 20, prayer and fasting for 21 days, and there was a struggle in the spiritual realm because prayer and struggle, they belong together. In the book of Romans, Paul's asking the Roman Christians to pray for him. He says, join me in my struggle by praying to God. I think prayer and struggle belong together. And our, our language this month has been not just struggle, but of contending prayer. Contending, where you wrestle, where you fight, where you grab on, and where you don't let go. And you ask the Lord for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he doesn't always do it in our time or in our perception. But contending means you don't let it go. You grab hold, you strive and you lay hold of them, to use that language from Isaiah. We've got one more week to think about contending. And we've talked about asking. We've talked about forgiving. We've talked about God's will versus our will. We've talked about our Father. We've talked about simple prayer. But now we need to talk about what it looks like to trust and to contend. Let's try to do this with this last line. Lead us not into temptation. Isn't this a weird sentence? Lead us not into temptation. One scholar, Scott McKnight, he says, this seems preposterous. <laughs> Why would God lead us into temptation? It's preposterous for a lot of reasons, it seems to me. Jonathan Pennington and his work on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, this seems directly contradictory to the nature of God as Father. The whole prayer is our Father in heaven. This isn't a good Father. <laughs> Why would he lead us into temptation? It's contradictory to his nature. On the other hand, it's also contradictory to Scripture. Have you ever heard James chapter 1 where it says, whenever you're tempted, it says, he says, don't be deceived. That's not God who's tempting you. God cannot tempt anyone. Instead, when we're tempted, we're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. God can't tempt. Why would he lead us into temptation? His nature, scripture. But in some ways, this line even seems contradictory to the next line. Lead us not into temptation. 
if he doesn't lead us into temptation, how is he delivering us from the evil one there? It's so odd, this line. And in the basic class of Jesus' master class on how to pray, he teaches us to pray this. And so I think if we're going to know how to pray the Lord's Prayer well, we need to understand what is happening in this strange line. And if we're going to understand what's happening in this strange line, we need to know what's happening in this strange word. And so I'm going to give some reflection today on this word, temptation. But actually, I'm going to use the Greek word, and there's a good reason. It's not because, like, I know Greek and you don't. No. <laughs> it's because this word in Greek has a range of meanings in English. So here's the Greek word. It's lead us not into pyrosmos. Can you say pyrosmos? Thank you. Now, pyrosmos isn't going to be the primary way we understand this word. But for them, a word had a range of meanings. And there's really three parts to this range of meaning that I want to show you. And I think if we understand the way that God leads us into temptation and delivers us from temptation, I think our prayer lives can step into that balance of both contending and trusting, that loud cries and yet reverent submission. That's, that's my goal for this morning. So let's dive into what pyrosmos might mean. The first dimension of this word pyrosmos is the idea of trial. Trial. Like a hard thing. Each one of these is going to have some component that I think helps to kind of make sense of what's going on. Or in some cases it helps to maybe add to some of the confusion as to what's going on. Pyrosmos can mean trial. And in fact, many of the early Christians, whenever they were reading this, they didn't just read it as lead us not into a trial, but they thought of it as lead us not into the great trial, the great tribulation, to use another translation of the same word. You see, they had read in scripture in passages like Matthew 24 that we'll look at later on this year, that there's this, sometimes it's called the last, there's some hard stuff coming when you probably don't want to be around for it. <laughs> and so he's saying, this prayer is like, can you lead us not? Let us, spare us from this really difficult trial that's coming. Or in the language of Revelation 3, he says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So there's a trial that's coming, many early Christians said. And so God wants, we want God to deliver us from that, to lead us not into it. But it doesn't seem that specific in the Lord's Prayer. Because he doesn't say, lead us not into the great tribulation. He just says, lead us not into any kind of pyrosma, any kind of trial. It's pretty general. It's not just for then, it's also for now. It's not just for them, it's also for us. Have you ever been through a trial? <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you ever woken up? Every day, in some sense, is a trial. And so I think Jesus is saying that we can ask the Lord to remove trials from our life. But at the same time, I think we need to be aware of a couple of things about God's world. God's world is sort of starting to answer why, if we're asking to not be led into trials, why might we still find them? God's world is the answer. Life in God's world is hard. Scriptures like 
really obvious about this. It doesn't hide this fact. If you just look at the context of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, just a few verses later from where we're reading, he says, each day has enough trouble of its own. Every day is hard, according to Jesus. And he says that his way, if you look at the chapter before, Matthew chapter 5, he says that his way is especially hard. He says if you're persecuted, you're actually blessed. If people speak ill against you, he says that's actually, you should expect it. A few chapters later, Matthew chapter 10, he says a servant is not above his master. If they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. Life was hard for me. Life is going to be hard for you. Life is hard. Life is hard all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and it's hard throughout the New Testament. In this world, you will have trouble, John 16. Don't be surprised, 1 Peter 4. Don't be surprised at the, at the fiery trial that you're facing as if something strange were happening to you. <laughs> no, the New Testament is very clear that hard stuff happens in this world. And so we can pray for God to lead us out of hard stuff, but hard stuff is just the nature of life. I like to say that life is hard. Very few make it out alive. Very few make it out alive, which has to put it into some perspective. We may not see the reality of death as much in our world, but even this morning, many of us are struggling with that reality in our families. So James says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face many trials, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So why might we still find trials, even though we're asking God to not see them? Because we live in the world, and the world is hard. It's not only hard, the world is complex. I was thinking what a farmer in Arkansas might be praying for this month. What do you think? Rain. What do you think a bride in Arkansas is praying for? No rain. She's praying for sun. Have you ever been on a flight where you're worried about making your connection? And maybe you pray, Lord, you know, if we get off early, and we, then I, I don't have to worry. Would you make a way? And instead, somebody runs up late. Oh, thank God. You see, the world's complex because there's so many different people in the world that sometimes our prayers can be contradictory even to the prayers of other people. Sometimes, as we talked about, they can even be contradictory to ourselves. Remember that prayer of giving me patience quickly. It's like sometimes we... The trials that we face are because the world is complex. And if God wanted to do something about these trials, certainly he could. But in the language of C.S. Lewis, the very conception of a common and therefore stable world demands that those occasions should be extremely rare. He says, yes, there are miracles, but miracles are miraculous, not normal. And if God granted miracles all the time, Pete Gregg says in his book, God on Mute, continually interfering with the governing principles of life on earth in order to answer every single one of our prayers, far from creating a cornucopia of greater happiness, the effects would, in fact, be devastating. 
when it comes to trials, we know that trials are hard and that life is hard and very few get out alive. And we know that sometimes God has something good for us in the trial. It's hard to hold those two in balance where you're with loud cries and tears and in reverent submission coming before the throne of God to find grace in our time of need. That's the way of Jesus, it seems to me. St. Augustine, he says this. He says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought in tribulations. Tribulations, they may do us good, and yet because they are hard and painful, we pray with a desire which is common to mankind that they may be removed from us. He says, we don't know what to pray for in trials, and so here's what we pray for. Lead us not into trials, but not as I will, but as you will. Augustine said the Spirit here helps us when we don't know what to pray for. He says Jesus helps us when we don't know what to pray for. He says the will of God helps us in our times of trials, which leads us to the second dimension. The first dimension of that word pyrosmos, lead us not into pyrosmos, is trial. It's hard stuff. And living in God's world means that we're going to face them. But in them, God intends them for our good. The second dimension is this, it's testing. Pyrosmos also includes the idea of testing. It's where you put something under heat or under pressure in order to find out what it's really made of. It's a test. And there's a lot of overlap, right, with the idea of a trial. But test in some sense stands alone, and a lot of the translations bear this out. You see, most of the translations follow the King James Version in translating this temptation. But there's about five modern translations that call it a trial, and there's about five more modern translations that call it testing. And so which is it? I, I, I think there may be a piece of each of these dimensions. Testing. Testing is where you, you try to find the character of something underneath. And in Scripture, testing can be an amazing gift. Did you know that God is one of the primary people who test in Scripture? Let me just give a few for instances. The book of Hebrews says that by faith, when God tested Abraham, he offered up Isaac. God tested Abraham. Moses, he said to the people of Israel in Exodus 20, don't be afraid. God has come to test you. Don't be afraid. This is only a test. And the test is so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. You see, God wants to test you in order to keep you from sinning. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the wilderness, God wants to test you in order to know what's in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. Judges chapter 2, I will use this foreign nation to come and to test Israel and to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord. God is wanting faithfulness from his people, and he uses tests to bring it out. Jesus tested people too. In John chapter 6, Jesus asked Philip this question, he already knew the answer, and it says that Jesus asked this only to test him. Why a test? The answer to why a test, even if we're praying, God, don't lead us into a test. Some of you hate tests. Lord, lead us not into tests. But there may actually be good reasons why he would lead us there. One of the reasons is because of God's will. God, in some sense, in his will, wants to use tests to reveal something that's hidden. Richard Foster, in his book on prayer, says it like this. 
the only time God tries us is when there's something in our hearts that needs revealing. Therefore, the prayer, lead us not into temptation, means this. Lord, may there be nothing in me that will force you to put me to the test, to reveal what's in my heart. We want to be progressing, he says, in the realms of transformation with no hidden sins so that God will not be forced to put us to the test. Testing is meant to reveal. The book of Proverbs puts it like this. The crucible, crucible with a metal and heat underneath, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests our hearts. The test of God is meant to be like a crucible to burn out impurities, to reveal something that's there. The psalmist says, search me, O God, know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The test, it's an examination meant to reveal. It's meant to help us grow, because the truth is, our wills aren't fully aligned with God in his will just yet. I think true prayer in the name of Jesus is when we pray, not as I will, but as you will. True prayer in the name of Jesus is when our priorities and our prayers are totally in sync with God's promises and his desires. That's not where we're at, though. And so very often, even as we're asking God, lead us not into testing, he will still lead us into testing because he has something to show us. Why testing? It's not just God's will, but there's actually a world of wills. So sometimes we'll end up in tests because other wills are happening. Um, if you think of all the wills in the world, it's not just the will of God. It's also my will and your will and eight billion other wills. It's also not only human will and divine will, but also the evil spiritual beings. They all have a will. There's this world full of wills. And what C.S. Lewis says, he says, if you try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, you'll find that you have excluded life itself. In order for there to be this world, God allows these wills to be there. And some of you may lean more towards Calvin. Listen to Calvin. Whenever he's reflecting on prayer, he's reflecting on the prayer of Elijah in James chapter 5. Even Calvin says, God put in heaven in some sense under the control of Elijah's prayers. He's saying, it's not just God's will. Elijah had a will. And heaven, in some sense, allowed that will to take place. Guys, if John Calvin has room for more than just the will of God in the world, then even if you're Calvinist, you've got to have some room there. It's not just God's will. It, there's so many wills, and those wills are often in competition. But here's what you can know about God's will in these tests, that God's will is not for your suffering. God's will is for your sanctification. P.T. Forsyth, he says, we shall come one day to a heaven where we shall gratefully know that God's great refusals were sometimes the true answers to our truest prayers. 
Some prayers aren't answered, another author says, because God has something even better for us. Keller says it like this, in short, either God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. So praying in Jesus' name means lifting up my desires and lining them with his desires so that my prayers and his purposes are aligned. The test. Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, no pyrosmos, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your ability. And with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's so interesting that even when Paul is riffing on testing and temptation, he doesn't say that you'll be able to escape it. He says the way of escape will allow you to endure it. Because God's desire in a test is to grow you through it. Our flourishing is not opposed to testing. He leads us sometimes into testing for our good and for his glory. The third dimension, final dimension here of pyrosmos is just the, the word temptation. This is the most common translation following the King James. Lead us not into temptation. In the Greek lexicons, it takes on a different dimension. So the first dimension of trial and testing is really to see what's in something, the true nature of something. This one is to try to get someone to do something that's evil. And is the Lord leading us into evil? Of course not. Now, that would be contradictory to his nature. That would be contradictory to scripture. That would be contradictory to what we see. So where is this temptation coming from? Well, in the prayer, it says, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, some translations say, deliver us from evil, but this is Matthew's way of talking about the evil one, about Satan himself. He calls him the accuser, the slanderer. He calls him the adversary. In Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested, but it is the serpent, it is the evil one who uses that as an opportunity to tempt him to do evil. He is the tempter. He is a liar, and his mission, John 10 says, is to steal and to kill and to destroy. That is not the will of God for you. That is the will of the evil one. And so in these same pyrosmos of trials and testing, there is one active warring with his will against you for your destruction. This is all over the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus himself faces this, this deadly creature head on in Matthew chapter 4. And it, it plays out all the way through it. The final scene of the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Watch and pray lest you enter into the pyrosmos, the temptation. The test is coming. He says, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have to pray to deliver us from this, this creature and his his will to destroy us. He is a liar and a cheater and an accuser and a condemner, and he will leverage everything in his power to destroy you. But that is not the will of God. So I, I want to hold these three pieces together, and I, I want to help guide you in, in a quick practice. Would you grab that bulletin again? And let me just guide you through a few questions. And I want you to offer these in prayer today and, and later on. But what I want you to do is I'm just inviting you to search your story and the journey that the Lord has put you on right now. 
Um, I, I started with this question of how is prayer a struggle and what are you struggling for in prayer? And I don't want to go into any details today, but I can say with confidence, <laughs> with, and it was just like, oh, Lord, that my wife and I are praying for two big things right now. We want the Lord to lead us in a season of discernment about something. And we've been asking the Lord to deliver us from a hard thing that he's put in our path right now. And to lead us and to deliver us. Can I just say, I don't know what to pray for. You have a decision, a transition, a turning point in life. Or you have a struggle, a trial, a test. And it's like, this could go either way. I don't really know what to pray for here. But Kelsey and I were given a great gift from the Lord. In the weeks before, what, where we really needed to lead and to be delivered. And what the Lord showed us is that he was leading us. And so in some sense, it doesn't even matter where you're going as long as you know you're going with him. But we also had this other gift that the Lord gave us through our friends Mo and Nikki. Do you remember when Mo and Nikki came to our prayer gathering a couple of weeks ago? Mo and Nikki, we got to go have dinner with them. They're Nigerian uh, Christians, church planters over in Murfreesboro. And whereas I, I tend towards the reverent submission in prayer, I think Mo and Nikki tend much more towards loud cries and tears in prayer. And so we had the opportunity of the Lord granting us a reverent submission, but then letting us experience someone's loud cries and tears for us. And it helped us remember that God doesn't want us to suffer. That God doesn't want us to be confused. God wants us to live in joy and peace and righteousness in his love and kingdom. That is God's will for you. And the, the evil one wants to twist those and turn those. So what I want to do is invite you to search your own story of where you're at today and where the Lord is leading you. And I want to give three questions as a grid for making sense of that pyrosmos that you're facing. So first, the, the question is of trial. Lord, what are you wanting to form in me? Can you answer that question? Maybe even write down an answer. Given your own pyrosmos, your own struggle, the thing that you're desiring and contending for, what is the Lord actually wanting to form in you? Second question. Testing. If testing is about revealing the true nature of something, Lord, what are you wanting to reveal to me or reveal about me or reveal in me? If it feels like a trial, it's very likely that God wants to grow something. If it feels like a test, it's very likely that God wants to take something hidden in your heart and shine a light so that you don't have to carry it anymore. Sometimes it may be a secret sin. It may be an unhealthy desire, a disordered, inordinate desire. It may be a past wound that you're continuing to carry. It may be a resentment. The evil one will take any opportunity to get a foothold. 
He will, he will put in roots of bitterness in all kinds of places. But the Lord wants to weed those things out. So, Lord, what are you wanting to reveal to me? The third question is about the pyrosmos of temptation. Lord, how is the evil one tempting me? One of the great thinkers in Christian history, he says there's a temptation to the left and a temptation to the right. If you're on a path, he says you can fall into either ditch. The, the temptation to the left is where in your experience of disgrace and contempt and afflictions, when life gets hard and it feels like everything's taken away, your blessings are taken away, your prosperity is taken away, your reputation is taken away, it feels like God doesn't love me. He says, this is a temptation from the evil one. He says, you need to be aware that the evil one is going to use your pyrosmos to accuse the Lord and you in your faith that God doesn't love me. But he says the temptation on the right side is that you will want riches and power and honors. If the first one is about not having, this one is about having so much. And this temptation is the idea that I don't need God. There's a temptation to the left and to the right. So which one is the evil one leveraging in your heart? Does that, does that make sense? Can you write down, I'm gonna give you an, another moment of silence to answer these three questions. And if you're not writing them down, that's fine. But would you just pause and ask the Lord to guide you into answering these questions? And then would you, perhaps even with literal open hands, offer those to the Lord and ask for his help? All right, I'll give you a few moments of silence and I'll come back. Our Father, we ask that you would not lead us into trials. But if you do, would you help us to trust that it's for our good? Our Father, we ask that you would not lead us into testing. But if you do, would you grow our trust that you are with us, that you go before us, and that your illumination is for our good? Lord, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You help us to see how the evil one will use these trials and tests for evil. And we pray for your rescue. In the name of Christ, amen. I want to wrap up the whole series in, in just a, a quick reflection. Back to Gethsemane. You see, the, the person of Jesus, he faced two major tests at the beginning and the end. The first test is the wilderness, where the evil one came to him. He tested his identity, and he dismissed Satan, and he was innocent. He's sinless. And at the very end of his life, he's in the final test, and his final exam happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, he's fully aware of what he's facing. In Matthew 26, he tells his disciples to watch and pray lest you enter into the pyrosmos. He comes back to them and he says, couldn't you pray for an hour in your sleep? He goes back and he prays. He comes back to them. They're still sleeping. I'm, I'm just so struck by the prayerlessness of the disciples and my own prayerlessness. Watch and pray. But they slept. 
But here's the thing. <laughs> Jesus didn't. Can, can we just point to Jesus and just think about how amazing our Savior is for just a few minutes and, and then we'll close. But I, I want you to worship Jesus as you just think about even the final week of his prayers. He says, I want you to pray our Father in heaven. But on the cross, Jesus prays, my God, my God. It's the, it's the only prayer of Jesus that doesn't begin Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus teaches us to pray for his name to be hallowed, the name of the Father to be hallowed. In John 12, he's praying. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? This hour is his death. Save me from this hour? No, it is for this hour that I have come. Father, hallow your name. And the hallowing of God na God's name requires his death at that hour. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And as he's in the garden, he says, not as I will, but as you will. And then he's ushered into that mockery where he's crowned a king and he's, he's whipped and beaten. Hail, king of the Jews. Give us today our daily bread. And on the cross, all that he got was a, a sponge with sour water. And he says, I thirst. He teaches us to pray, forgive us. And the Roman centurion looked onto the cross and he said, truly, this was an innocent man. And that innocent man said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And there's this last scene where he says, watch and pray. Temptation's coming. And we slept through it. But not him with loud cries and tears. With loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. It says he was heard because of his reverent submission. Except that he wasn't heard. Deliver us from evil? Peter takes up the sword. He says, I'll deliver you. What are you doing? If you pick up the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels and my father would send them to me? But he died alone for you and me. Deliver us from the evil one. No, he was delivered to the evil one. This is why we should pray. Because that one, Jesus, the, the one we worship, the one who saves, 
the one who went through death so that we could go through life, the one that went to hell so that we could experience the joy of heaven, he is our intercessor. He is our mediator. He is our advocate. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, the spirit is for us. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit groans for us. Verse 31, he says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He didn't withhold his only son, but he gave him for us. Verse 34, he says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And furthermore, he is the one who intercedes for us. The Spirit is for us. God is for us. Christ, our intercessor, is for us. So even when we sleep, he's praying. He always lives to make intercession. So he is able to save to the uttermost. He's thinking about how weak we are. He says the the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, and how strong he is. You see, he's strong enough to give you an identity that can endure the trial. He's strong enough to give you an identity that can endure the test. That even if you fail the test, his gift of grace is still there. There's no condemnation. Who is to condemn? Praise be to God, our Father, and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you.